the church. The Light 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you are a first time listener, a special welcome for the next hour. We will be taking people's questions. There are many ways in which you can contact us. Uh, directly here at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. We get a lot of emailed questions that way. Some uh, send them through Search the Scriptures. There's a drop-down menu, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. Or you can call us here direct. Again, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. And when you call, you are more than happy to dictate your question. Many people like to go on live. We do give preference to live callers. And so, again, if there's maybe some issue you're uh, struggling with in your Christian life or a challenge over a passage of Scripture in terms of its meaning or application, if there's some way we can be of help by God's grace, we will. Walter, great to have you here sitting at the desk this morning, and let's go ahead and we'll get started. Yes, sir. Happy to be here, Pastor Carl. All right, our first question comes from Brogan in Bluffton, South Carolina. Uh, he asks, over the last few months, I've been studying the doctrine of repentance in terms of salvation, and there seems to be many different views on the correct definition. I recently read The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur and So Great Salvation by Charles Ryrie, and their definitions seem to differ more than they support each other. My understanding of repentance is that it is a change of mind about one's sin and their need to cling to Christ's for deliverance from the pain, power, and penalty of sin. I often hear repentance also described as a as turning from sin, but I see this as more of a fruit of repentance, and using this terminology can be confusing. I don't want to make repentance sound like a work or water it down. What is the proper biblical definition of repentance, and how should a believer present uh, present repentance while going through the plane of salvation? Well, it's a great question, and I think sometimes people can get confused. Uh, Dr. Ryrie and John MacArthur are not as far apart as people made them. Dr. Ryrie, of course, is no longer with us. He went to heaven a few years ago. Uh, A very godly man, loved Christ, loved the cause of Christ, wrote scores of books, has been helped by, has helped many, many people. Uh, Let's just bring it down to simple definitions. The word repent It can be used as a noun or repentance, uh, as an adjective, but the the verb repent metaneo simply means to change your mind. So the word repent is not a feelings word so much as it is an action word. Uh, The people on Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching so powerfully under the influence of the Holy Spirit, 
They're convicted to the core, and they say, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Uh, They needed to repent. They needed to change their mind. And so is repentance something that we do before we come to Christ? And I would say, well, yes, because it's impossible to believe without repenting. Uh, Of course, when Paul is asked the question, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say repent. He says believe. But inherent in genuine belief is genuine repentance. So yes and no, repentance does not describe some work we do before we come to Christ, but it does describe what coming to God is like. If you are in California and I tell you to come to South Carolina— I don't really need to say leave California to come to South Carolina. To come to South Carolina is to leave California. And if you haven't left California, then you really haven't come to South Carolina. And when you come to Christ, you're coming for the forgiveness of sin. You're willing to call sin for what it is. And so someone who says, well, you know, uh, as long as I believe in Jesus, I can still sleep with my girlfriend. I can still get drunk. I can still smoke dope. I can still do this. I can still do that really does not understand why he has a need for Jesus Christ. He has a need for Jesus Christ because his sin is offensive to God, and he has to change his mind about that. So repentance is certainly not a work, but it is something that results in work. And so when John the Baptist is preaching, he talks about producing fruit uh, in keeping with repentance. Uh, Paul, when he's preaching, he said, I... I I preached, I'm paraphrasing him now, that you should repent, turn to God, and prove your repentance by your your deeds. So genuine repentance produces a changed life. Now, again, you can be convicted of sin without repenting. Uh, Paul was uh, preaching a powerful message to Felix. He became frightened. I preached a message on that one Easter. He became frightened to the point where he trembled, but he didn't repent. Uh, You can even acknowledge sin without genuinely repenting. Uh, Pharaoh, when he is brought under conviction of sin through the various plagues that God brings as Moses, the servant of the Lord, is used of the Lord to deliver the people out of Egypt. He says, I have sinned, and I and my people, he says, are the wicked ones. But just a short throw later, he hardens his heart. So he, he confesses, he acknowledges that what he's doing is sinful, but he doesn't really repent. Uh, Esau, he, he cried, he wept. Sometimes people create repentance as something emotional. Uh, he sought God with tears, but he never repented. Uh, so when you repent, you change your mind. Uh, in the context of Acts 2, what did they need to change their mind concerning? Well, they said Jesus was only a man. And Peter indicts them with crucifying the Lord of glory. You said he's just a man, but he's God in human flesh, and he proves it and documents it from Holy Scripture. And so they needed to change their mind over who they thought Jesus was indeed. And so when we come to Jesus, we believe that his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to save us. And if you don't believe that, then you haven't repented because you're believing that he is able to save you from sin and you're willing to call sin, sin. So you cannot say, well, I'm really calling sin, sin and, uh, and say, well, I want forgiveness of it. No, if you want forgiveness, you need to acknowledge that your sin is hurtful to the heart of God. And sometimes God puts his finger 
on a particular issue in a person's life. It might be some moral issue like transgenderism or homosexuality or adultery or fornication or drunkenness. It might be um, lying. It might be stealing. It might be a spirit of self-righteousness that you're good enough. So very often God puts his finger on a particular issue in your life. And so you come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Now, we need to be careful here because sometimes people, you know, when they present receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior, they don't underscore enough the need to recognize that there's a progressive dimension to sanctification. That sometimes when we come to Christ, I mean, there's a lot of dirty laundry that God begins to point out one step at a time. But when you come to Jesus, the root of all sin really is a spirit of rebellion. We do not want him to reign over us, as Jesus told that parable, where the citizens are the people of Israel, and a king came and they said, we don't want this king to rule over us. Uh, That was the spirit of rebellion that they needed to change their minds concerning. And so we do the same thing. And then once we're saved, God begins to habitually um, make uh, issues in our life that he wants to change. And he does that all the way until Jesus comes. But we don't want to cloud the gospel and fog the gospel. And I think that's what Dr. Ryrie, as much as anything, was objecting to You know, the gospel ought to be simple enough so that a child can get it. So when you're dealing with a little child, you know, are you repenting, you know, as an eight-year-old of your drug use or your immorality? Of course not. But they can acknowledge that they're sinful, that they need forgiveness, and they need a Savior, and that Jesus is sufficient to save them. So you can't believe without repenting. It's impossible. But so when you believe you are repenting, if you are truly believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line with Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Ruth out of Daytona Beach, Florida. She asks, my pastor, who is a Southern Baptist, is a preacher that sometimes says things that make me stop and look around the room as if it bothered anyone but me. I know everyone has their baggage to dump in their walk with Christ, but I expect more from a pastor. His baggage is sci-fi and fantasy fiction. On a good note, he loves supporting missionaries big time. Example, he has used Gandalf, which is a wizard from the Lord of the Rings, twice as a good example, not evil to prove a point. He has used Harry Potter as an example once. He said he knew many of us do not approve of this series, but J.K. Rowling is a really good writer. He has played on a Warcraft team, which is a video game, for over the last 10 years. I think that the game is demonic, while others disagree. His teenage daughter's dress hemlines are mid-thigh or higher. These are the big ones for me. He does not help me grow. I am not challenged, nor do I really learn anything. The longer I stay, the more I want to run. Also, he is not young. If he was, I could explain his behavior better and step in with motherly advice. He is in his 50s. I really want to leave, but my husband likes it, and it took me two decades to get him back into church. We moved here, and sadly, this seems to be the best church in the area. We've been here for a year. Should I speak to him? I have not because I am a woman a woman near his age, and I think a man should do it as he is the pastor. Guidance, please. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I think he's mixing oranges and apples and you know, no doubt J.K. Rowling's is an interesting 
uh, gripping author. That's why kids are reading her books. That's part of it. But sometimes, you know, kids read books because they're filled with sensuality and immorality and they they're gripped by it and they can't put the book down because they're feeding their sin nature and so when you think about harry potter you know some think well he's a harmless you know character filled with fun and fantasy and and others would see the writings of jk rowling's as an invitation to the occult so let me just say look when you when you look through these books and have I read them? No. Have I read reviews on them? Yes. Have I read sections out of these books? Yes. So I'm not giving you secondhand information, but I read enough in terms of full paragraphs to know that the books are filled with witchcraft and wizardry, which is not a healthy thing to feed into the hearts of your children. And, um, you know, they've got characters who are casting spells, who are reading crystal balls, who, although they don't technically communicate with the demonic world in a straightforward way, that's the nature of casting spells. That's the nature of crystal balls and all the like. And it's very different from, say, Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis did um, because he's coming from a, a biblical positive worldview and this woman by no means is coming that. And so when a child reads this, especially a child who hasn't grown much spiritually, uh, they're going to have difficulty discerning between good and evil, and uh, they'll have trouble sorting through all this. And so you don't want to see how close you can get to sin without sinning. You want to see how far away from sin you can be. And so what came to my mind was Deuteronomy 18, and I've turned there, and let me just read you a portion of Scripture. Moses writes, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive uh, dr- drive them out before you. And so God says in the New Testament, you're to fill your minds with the things that are good and holy and pure and worthy of praise. And and when you're dealing with young and spiritually immature children who don't have the ability to distinguish between reality and fantasy, right and wrong, good and evil, or if they do, it's on a limited level because they just haven't had enough time to grow. Not to mention there's some violence, some lying, some mildly foul language. Why would you want to expose your children to that? You're soiling their minds. And God gave great warning about those who would hurt little children. And look, when he's dealing with unbelievers, he said it would be better for them to have a millstone. And there's different words for millstone in the Greek New Testament. There's a millstone that is used to, uh, that a woman would use to grind her flour and then there is a millstone that a donkey would uh, would pull around a, a ring in order to 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 perform his task. In other words, we're talking about a huge, gigantic millstone that sometimes could be anywhere from one to two tons. And that's the word that Jesus uses. And even if you didn't know Greek, the literal rendering is put out in the margin there in Matthew's gospel: uh, a millstone turned by a donkey. 
And Jesus said it would be better to have that hung around your neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to hurt a child. And that's really what these people are doing. They're desensitizing children to evil. And so, look, the, the prince of the power of the air is the one who's energizing the sons of disobedience. And when something is super popular in the eyes of the average lost person, it should raise a red flag of caution. It's not necessarily wrong, but it potentially can be wrong. The things that are highly esteemed by the world, Jesus said, is detestable to God. And so you should proceed with a sense of caution. And since, you know, they're reading crystal balls and casting spells and doing some things that are included in this list in Deuteronomy that are detestable to the Lord, you don't want to expose your children to that. There's so many other good pieces of literature that your children can read. Uh, that's the kind of things you want to expose their tender hearts to. Why, why waste your time on this trash? I mean, this woman's a pagan. Well, why invest your life uh, reading the works of a hardcore pagan who's basically, you know, polluting the minds of little children and making them more and more susceptible and um, adaptable to things that are evil. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Walt. All right. Um, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Holly here in Beaufort, South Carolina. She says, my uncle is in Hialeah, Miami, and mentioned about a year ago about Zechariah. What chapter and verse, if you know, will I find something about the Antichrist possibly being Catholic or a pope? Of course, this answer may be in the book or maybe another book of our Bible. Would you know about this? Well, if you're asking specifically with the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah is not an impossible book to outline in your mind. There's eight visions in chapters 1 through 6. There's four mass messages in chapters 7 through 8. And then he has two burdens in 9 through 14. And the two burdens that grip his heart is one, the rejection of the Messiah, and the other is the reign of the Messiah. So you're really in the futuristic section of the book uh, of Zechariah when you come to chapters 9 through 14. And so you're referring to a very famous passage of Scripture. I've turned there. It's Zechariah chapter 11. And here Zechariah says, the Lord said to me, and you'll see it's all caps. In other words, Yahweh said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered or the young, you could render it, heal the broken and sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the, of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. So the title that you're referring to that Zechariah uses for the coming Antichrist is that of a foolish shepherd. There's actually over 30 titles given to the Antichrist. The most popular title is found in 1 John. He's referred to as the Antichrist. He's never called the Antichrist even in the book of Revelation. He's called the Beast and so on. Um, but there's over 30 titles given to the Antichrist, and here he's called the foolish shepherd. In fact, if you if you took the word um, in terms of what he will do, uh, the, the things that he will not, and you remove the word not, and if you made it positive, he will care for the perishing, seek the young, heal the brokenhearted, and so forth, you'd actually have a picture of a good shepherd. 
So um, he has Zechariah the prophet do this little play acting again. And so this foolish shepherd is described here as not caring for those who are perishing. But, you know, a wise and a godly shepherd will, will seek the lost. Uh, this foolish shepherd will not seek the young, which is really the nuance here. Uh, he's speaking about the young who are scattered. And so doing a word-for-word translation, you could render it either way. But he's dealing with uh, young, young people, young in age. By contrast, a wise and a godly shepherd knows that he needs to care for the next generation that's coming up as much as he does for old people. Uh, the foolish shepherd will not heal those who are broken. By contrast, a godly shepherd is going to take broken hearts and heal them with the truth of God's word and his uh, unfailing love for those who know Jesus as Lord. Uh, the foolish shepherd here is described as one who will not feed those. Um, by contrast, a godly shepherd is going to feed the flock of God. Jesus told Peter, that's how you show your love for me. The foolish shepherd is going to really destroy the sheep. And he uses this metaphor in that he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. He's in the ministry for himself, to feed himself. Uh, He's in it for the pay. He's not in it to care for the people. And when you come into the New Testament— uh, Jesus describes his person in John five forty three. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another, and there's two words for another in Greek. There's heteros, another of a different kind, and then there's the word alos, which means another of the same kind, and that's what Jesus is referring to. Another like me in some respects, but very different from me. Uh, he is like the Lord Jesus and that he'll be Jewish. I don't believe for a second the Antichrist is a Gentile. I don't think the Jews would embrace a, a Gentile as a potential Messiah. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word Messiah for the Greek word Christos or Christ. And this man is a fake Christ. He comes in the place of Christ. And the Christ, the Messiah, is from the uh, tribe of Judah from the family of David. He's going to be very Jewish. And yet he said, I came in my father's name. You didn't receive me, but another like me, so to speak, will come in my name and you'll receive him. He's describing the foolish shepherd that they're going to embrace because of their rejection of the true Christ. Uh, Daniel 9, we studied this recently in our series on prophecy. They're going to embrace the coming Antichrist. Fortunately, by the grace of God, their eyes will be opened and Israel will be saved. They'll recognize that he's a phony Messiah, one that they should not give their allegiance to. All right, good question. And and there is obviously a lot of passages that describe the Antichrist. Uh, You might want to listen to our series that we're doing at Community Bible Church right now called God's prophetic schedule will be back in that series this coming Sunday. All right, Walter, let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Jim, who is also in Beaufort, South Carolina. He asked, what do you consider the unpardonable sin to be? Some say it is, it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Others say it is to die without accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior before you die. I have also been told by a pastor that he does not think someone can commit the unpardonable sin today. I believed, I believe that the unpardonable sin is blasphemy and the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and it can still be done today. 
All right, so you're asking me for my view on it. Um, I, I preached a, a sermon on this in our series on Jonah recently. Um, I say recently in the last year, but I think it's been airing on Search the Scriptures uh, in the last few months here. Uh, but Jonah, of course, is compared to a sign in Jesus when he addresses the subject of blasphemy of the Spirit. He reminds them, uh, he said, uh, let me read it to you. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And again, he's saying this in the context of this whole issue of blasphemy against the Spirit. Uh, it's actually found in all three Gospels, in Mark 3 and Luke uh, 12, and I've turned to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, would say the key to understanding Matthew 13 is Matthew 12. Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus addresses the kingdom parables, what is going to happen to Israel in light of their rejection of their Messiah. And so he describes that the kingdom is not canceled, it's simply delayed. And the reason for its delay is found here in the 12th chapter. In chapter 12 and verse 22, it says here, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Um, so uh, here is this man who comes. He, he's blind. He can't see. He's mute and that he's unable to speak. And so communication with him um, is really impossible from a purely human point of view. Uh, the man couldn't see, um, and so someone might tell him to do something, but he, he couldn't see. Uh, he could hear instructions, but he, he, he couldn't ask any questions. And so he's additionally demon-possessed, the text says here. And so here are these Pharisees, these religious leaders, and no doubt they thought they struck gold, that they brought someone to Jesus that was going to be so difficult he wouldn't be able to pull it off. Yet the Bible says here that he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And so he, he, he created a real problem. And, and of course, they don't know how to deal with this, and they can't deny the miracle. The miracle has been done right before them and this multitude of people. Um, but at the same hand, uh, they attribute his power not to the Spirit of God, for it's the Spirit of God Isaiah wrote of, who would be upon the Messiah, by which the Messiah would do these miracles. And they say, well, we can't deny the miracle, but you didn't do it. The Spirit of God didn't do it. Satan did it. And so Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So we need to ask an important question. Why is it, according to this section of Scripture, that any sin and blasphemy even, as he'll state in the prior verse, in verse 31 here, shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven people. And by the way, I think Mark's reading is interesting. There he said, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So you may have blasphemed God, and God can forgive it. So the big question, the million-dollar question is, why can blasphemy against the Father and blasphemy against the Son be forgiven and not blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, the first witness that God gave through John the Baptist 
concerned the witness of God the Father, that God the Father had promised the Messiah. And many of the religious leaders, not the people at large, but most of the religious leaders officially said, it's not true. Um, John is not presenting to us the Messiah of the world. And so they opposed John's ministry. Then, of course, there was a second witness they rejected. It was the witness of God the Son. Jesus related the works he did to a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the Messiah. He did things like opened blind eyes that no one had ever done. When the blind man is healed in John 9, he said, no one in the history of the world has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. But this one did. Well, that's one of the miracles that Isaiah speaks to that the Messiah would perform. And Jesus did that. And yet they said, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. So they rejected witness number two. So there's only one witness left, and that's the witness of the Spirit of God. And again, uh, this witness, they rejected the, the, the testimony of the Father through John. They rejected the words of Jesus where he claimed to be the Messiah. And now the third witness, the, the power by which these miracles were being performed, they said, no, this is being done not through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is be, being done by the work of Satan. And Jesus shows them how illogical, basically, their whole decision is that Satan is not fighting himself. And so the million-dollar question is, can a person commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today? And is there an unforgivable sin? Well, let me just say, first of all, there is an unforgivable sin that anyone can potentially commit, and that's to reject Jesus. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Uh, Jesus said, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged or condemned already. So the sin of unbelief is the sin that will send you to hell if you reject Jesus as your Savior. So more specifically, can blasphemy of the Spirit be committed today? Well, it depends how you define it. It may be that your pastor is saying that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be replicated today because um, the Holy Spirit is not physically operating through the Lord Jesus walking on the planet. And they would argue that it's impossible to reproduce that setting where Jesus is here on the earth doing miracles in front of us where we attribute uh, his miracles to evil. Well, okay, if you define blasphemy as the Spirit that way, then you would certainly say uh, that it cannot be replicated today. But is there another way to commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the essence of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It's attributing evil to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And does the Spirit of God work today? Yes, he does. He works in the hearts of men. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, and you say, no, I'm not going to respond. No, I'm not going to respond. No, it's not true. No, I don't need Jesus. No, 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 no. What are you, in essence, doing? You are saying to the Spirit of Truth, that's one of the titles given to him, that what you're communicating to my heart is not true. In essence, you're saying you're a liar. And that is, in many ways, to blaspheme the Spirit's character. By the way, did they commit the unpardonable sin? Not yet. Not yet. 
How so? Because Jesus is still going to give one more sign to Israel, and it will be the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, the whale in the King James, the great fish, uh, just as he was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, even so the Son of Man will be buried, and then he'll be resurrected on the third day. And, of course, they ended up rejecting that sign. Uh, Most of Israel, it was only a a remnant of Jews that believed, comparatively speaking, maybe as many as 30,000, some would put it, in the early days of the church of Jews who said Yeshua is the Messiah. Um, But overall, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Overall, the nation rejected him. And when they did that, they had crossed the line. And people can cross a line today. We speak of a future line when, you know, men will not be able to believe who had heard the gospel in clarity and in power, and only God can measure what that looks like. But people who have heard the gospel in clarity and in power and rejects the truth because of their love of sin— Paul says, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they will believe what's false. And so we speak of this coming future time frame during the great tribulation when that will happen. But it happens today, just as it happened in Jesus's day. In John 12, Jesus exhorted the Jewish leaders to believe in the light while you have the light, that you might become sons of light. And then John adds parenthetically, though he had done so many miracles in their presence, they still would not believe. And so, because they would not believe, he then goes on to say that they could not believe because God judicially hardened their heart and blinded their eyes. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus, in the parable of the sower, tells a a similar case where because of men's rebellion against God, the devil is given permission to snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. Now, again, God alone knows who those people are. But we don't draw ourselves to God. God is the one who does the stirring in the human heart to bring an individual, whether it's a child or an adult, to genuine faith in Christ. Now, I believe that that work of the Spirit is not limited, as some would argue, to a select few When he sends the Spirit, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so while man has general revelation through creation and conscience and the care of God Almighty, uh, he can be given specific revelation in the gospel itself. And men can spurn that gospel and reject that gospel and pay the eternal consequences. So you're both right. Now, I wouldn't make this an issue with your pastor. It sounds to me like you have a pastor who's trying to be faithful to the Scripture. You're wrong in the sense that there is an unforgivable sin, and the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. You didn't state that, but I'm assuming that's what you meant. Uh, But the way you worded it, you left yourself open. Um, But I think you would agree that there is an unforgivable sin, that your pastor affirms, and that's to reject Jesus as Lord. But the question is, can someone attribute evil to the Spirit of God today? And I would say yes. Even though you cannot replicate the exact circumstances, you can still, in your heart, uh, say no to the Spirit of truth. And when you say no to someone who's speaking truth to you, you're doing the opposite of faith. You're basically calling God a liar And that is a form of blasphemy. When you cross that line, it's known only to God. And if you have a desire, by the way, 
to receive Christ even today, you can still do that if the desire is there. How do you know potentially that someone has committed it? When they have such a disdain for the things of God, where they just with a almost a, a form of um, wicked language, they attribute the work of the cross to the evil one, they mock Jesus. Those people are on very shaky ground. Have people been saved out of those circumstances? Yes. But people who are in that state of mind, Jesus said, don't even give them the gospel. Don't cast your pearl before swine. And God would have to do a work that would change their attitude. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line with Pastor Carl. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Dave from Cuba. He asked, my mother has been divorced three times. From a biblical perspective, she cannot remarry. She is planning on getting married again. She claims to be a believer and a member of a church. But the church is unsound, mostly prosperity gospel, and her son and her son. What should his role be in approaching her from this perspective? Well, it's a it's an excellent question, and you should be very, very concerned, obviously, as you are, for the state of your mother and where it is that she will spend eternity. Again, we just read from Mark's gospel, all sins can be forgiven the sons of men. Is divorce something that God can forgive? Absolutely. God can forgive any and all sins. If I know that God, say, can forgive an abortion, does that mean if I'm a woman, well, God can forgive it. I guess I'll just go out and get an abortion because I know God will forgive it. Of course not. Do I reason in my mind, rationalize? A rationalization is nothing more than a rational sin. Do I say, well, God can forgive adultery, so I might as well commit adultery. God can forgive me getting drunk. I might as well get drunk, and I'll just ask God to forgive me. That's presuming on the grace of God. So on the one hand, we need to hold out God's standard. On the other hand, we need to hold out God's forgiveness. So what is God's standard? Well, when he addresses divorce in Mark chapter 10, He definitively makes it very clear, and he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. I mean, there's no exception there. It's just straightforward. Um, you, You can't, you know, reason around it. In Luke's gospel, I've just turned over to Luke 16, And in verse 18, and there Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You may have never been married, but you marry a divorced man, or you may have never been married and you marry a divorced woman. God says you're committing adultery. Uh, And so there is an exception clause. It's found in Matthew chapter 19. Let me read it without the exception first. And in Matthew's gospel, and the exception is found, by the way, just in Matthew's gospel. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and it's repeated again here in Matthew 19. And Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, let me read it with the exception clause. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, or you could render it sexual immorality, or you could render it 
fornication. The Greek text says, except for porneia, and marries another woman, commits moike or, or adultery. By the way, he uses two distinctly different Greek words. He does not say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. No, he uses two distinctly different Greek words. Why? Because he has two distinctly um, different thoughts that are in mind. And so when Jesus earlier in this gospel describes the heart of man, he says, out of the heart of man comes fornications and adulteries. If the word meant the same thing, why does he repeat himself? Because there's two different nuances that are in view. And so the exception clause is found only in Matthew's gospel because only Jews practice what's known as betrothal. Betrothal is different from engagement. A betrothal is a binding relationship, so binding that you're called husband and wife before you have consummated the marriage. There are four examples of that in the Old Testament. There's one example in the New Testament where Joseph is described as the husband of Mary, and yet he had had no physical relationship with her. He's betrothed to her, finds out she's pregnant, assumes that she has been immoral during the betrothal period, in which case Moses allowed at this point a certificate of divorce. He was going to put her away. It's the same word. He's going to divorce her, or some translations render it. Why? Because though he's betrothed, the marital contract had been violated. And generally, you were betrothed for a year. And it gave the man time to go and prepare a place for a bride. And two, it proved the bride's faithfulness, that she was pure. And so he's going to put her away. And so you find the exception clause only in relationship to sexual immorality during the betrothal period. In fact, when Jesus in John 8 uh, deals with the woman caught in adultery, they end up slamming him and they say, well, we weren't born of porneia, uh, but you were, basically. You were born of fornication. You're here, Jesus, because Mary was unfaithful during the marital uh, betrothal period. And so she had to live with that slander her whole life because here it is 30-some years later, and they're still dragging up uh, the fact that Mary was pregnant by another man and not by Joseph and refused to accept what the Scriptures plainly said, that a virgin would conceive and have a child. And so there is no exception today. And Paul makes that clear, for instance, in Romans chapter 7. In Romans, the seventh chapter, he makes a very pointed statement. Again, he's, he's illustrating through marriage our relationship to the law. And so his primary purpose is not to address the subject of marriage and divorce, but Paul does not use an illustration that has error in it to teach truth. The spirit of truth only uses truth to teach truth. So in every parable that Jesus told, there's no untruths in it to make a point. He uses truth to speak truth. And so Paul does in this illustration, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, or you could render it married to another man, as most English translations put it, but that's clear from what follows. So if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. 
so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. What's his point? His point is, is what Jesus said, that marriage is to be one man, one woman, until death severs the relationship. You say, well, Pastor Carl, what if I'm in a relationship where I'm physically being abused? And I'm underscoring the word physically, because I meet people all the time who say, well, I'm emotionally abused. Well, you know, I hate that for you, but emotional abuse is not the same as physical abuse, where your temple, the Spirit of God, is being harmed and your life is being endangered. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then he says the husband should not divorce or leave his wife if the shoe's on the other foot. So this is interesting. He said, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And this is in contrast to what he'll say in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, in verse 12, he's saying, what I'm about to tell you is an issue that Jesus did not address, but I'm going to address as his apostle with the same authority on his behalf. So that's a real eye-opener to me because when I read verse 10 of chapter 7 to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Where on earth did Jesus say that in his teaching on marriage and divorce? That if you divorce your wife and you marry another, you commit adultery. That's what he said. I was just dealing recently with a young couple, you know. They, they're they both on their third marriage. You know, this is not unusual to meet someone in their late 20s, early 30s now, and for one, and in this case, there's six marriages between the two. You know, and they're struggling with all this stuff, and I said, well, first of all, let's make it really clear that you two have lived in serial adultery. I don't care what the preacher told you. He was wrong. And by the way, the view that adultery after marriage dissolved the marriage bond and gave the innocent party freedom to remarry, and even if that was taught and applied in that way, it would eliminate a lot of second marriages. But even that is not taught, but that view was introduced during the time of the Protestant Reformation by a man by the name of Erasmus, a Roman Catholic theologian who debated Martin Luther tooth and nail on justification by grace alone through faith alone. Now, whether he ever repented of that false belief that a man can help save himself, I don't know. There's no written record. I sure hope he did. But he wasn't a believer when he introduced this idea that the exception clause referred to adultery after marriage. Look, if that's what the Lord meant, he would have used the word moikeia twice, but he doesn't. I say to whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits moikeia, uses two distinct words. And again, it's found only in Matthew because only Jews practice betrothal. And so Paul is giving an allowance here. Sometimes a woman is in a marriage relationship where her husband's a serial adulterer or vice versa. and Or maybe she goes home and he's a drunk and he's harming her or the kids. Am I advocating that she stay under the same roof with that man? No, but I would advocate what Jesus said, that if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
Uh, that's a difficult teaching in a day where marriages have become so cheap. But by the way, this is what I cover in the very first appointment of premarital counseling because I want that young couple to see that it's not until divorce do us part, but until death do us part or the return of Christ do us part because we won't be married in heaven. And so, you know, people who are in second, third, fourth marriages, they need to own it. They need to own it and say, God, what we did was displeasing. And they need to be able to say to their children, look, you know, my ex was this, my ex was that, and that's why I dumped her. And what they end up doing is they contribute to second marriages where people say, well, Joe Schmo over there, he's on his third marriage, and he finally got one that will work. Maybe if I dump my husband, you know, I can make it work. And, and, and that's very, very harmful. So we need to own it before the Lord, too, because you don't want to cloud over it. Can God forgive this? Yes, absolutely. And I would say probably 60% of the people at the church I pastor are on second marriages. Why? Because the sins of the culture walk in the front door of the church. And if you start winning people to Jesus on a regular basis, people are going to bring all kinds of baggage with them. But they can be forgiven. That's what the cross is about. It's a cross of forgiveness. But we have to own the sin so that God can bless the marriage. You can't unscramble eggs, so you, you can't go back. You can't unscramble eggs, but you can go forward. You, you can't change maybe the way you started your life, but you can change the way you'll end it. And your life can have a different ending from this day forward. Uh, so um, in, de- in dealing with your mom, you deal with her in truth. Obviously, marriage for her may be like having another date. And that's the problem in a sexually immoral culture. People have multiple partners before they get married. And so, you know, getting married is really not all that different. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just get another partner. And that's the tragedy of our day. And uh, it needs to be addressed. All right. We have a caller who's waiting. Let's go to them. Yes, sir. 843-525-1859. Pastor Carl, we have Anthony. Anthony, you are live with Pastor Carl on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. How are you this morning? Hey, good, Anthony. Um, Question, question. Um, When church members are disciplined and does restoration supposed to come after that from uh, pastors or do sometimes some pastors shun people because they've been disciplined or the church shun people because they've been disciplined? Does restoration supposed to take place? Is that something that's supposed to be next? Or is that something that you're supposed to just wait to happen? If you can understand my question, please. No, I fully understand it. It's a good question. Um, We're dealing with the subject of church discipline, something that is almost obsolete in our day. Uh, someone asked me recently, how many times have we practiced church discipline since you've been the pastor? And I said, I don't know, at least 50 times. You say 50 times, why didn't I hear about it? Because many times it stops in the second or th- first or second stage. But uh, I think I went back and counted carefully in my own mind. I think there were seven times where it came to the third stage. And out of those seven times, as I went back and thought about it more carefully, three of those people were restored. And so the goal of church discipline 
is to protect the testimony of the local assembly. The name of Christ is to be honored and not walked over. And it's also to potentially restore that person from the harm of sin. And so Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And so when you look at the New Testament and you let Scripture define Scripture, obviously we all sin in many ways, James will say. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. So Jesus is speaking about sin of a public nature that potentially brings harm and hurt to the body of Christ. We know that from passages like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians where uh, you have a case, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5. Let me just turn there for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says it's actually reported, and the word uh, reported is the Greek word kalao, means it's, it's broadcasted. It's actually broadcasted. In other words, it's well known that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, not even among the pagans. There he's using the word Gentile not just as a non-Jew, but as a synonym for a pagan. Because obviously a lot of the people that he is writing are Gentiles in the Corinthian church, that someone has his father's wife. In other words, you have someone who's sleeping with his stepmother. And he says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So he says, for I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as if I were present. And in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled and I with you in spirit, the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be delivered or saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there was public sin. They did nothing about it. If your brother sins, you don't go, hey, I got a prayer request for you. Um, and you bring it to your Bible study. So-and-so is living in sin. No, you go to him in private. You reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, you take two or one or two more with you. So you now have two or three. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact shall be confirmed. And so he's quoting Moses from the book of Deuteronomy. If he still refuses to listen, then you tell it to the church. And so it, we often do this on a Wednesday night service, and so we'll share it with the church. So-and-so, we've gone through these steps, and if you see him, encourage him to do what's right. If he doesn't listen, then you t- treat him as an unbeliever. He's removed from the church, and if he's a real believer, he comes under the attack of the evil one. The protective umbrella of the church is removed. The name of Christ is protected. But your goal is to restore the person. That's your goal. Not to ostracize them, but to restore them. But it's also so to protect the testimony of the church so someone can't say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites out of that church. You know, people are living with each other, getting drunk, taking drugs, smoking weed, and doesn't matter. Yet they call themselves born again. It does matter. The testimony of Christ matters. That's why church discipline is to be used and enacted. And I have a whole message in this in our series on ecclesiology for those who care to study it. Well, you can hear the music. We're out of time. 